Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Alex Pounds, and Andrew's away this week. And we're exploring the technical details of package management, the stories and the history of various projects, and the communities around them too. Today, we're joined by Nils Adaman, the creator of the Composer Package Manager for PHP, and co-founder of Packagist. Nils, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Nils, you are now quite deeply embedded within the PHP community working on the package management, but how did you first get into technology? Uh, So I started getting into technology just uh, being interested as a kid in what made the computers work. So I think a lot of my classmates actually had access to computers a bit earlier than I did, uh, or the the access I had at first was kind of my parents' computer, which I didn't get to use quite that much. From the beginning on, I was just kind of fascinated with what made this work and how to change how it operates. Um, This eventually also is what led me into PHP. So a little while later, um, I tried setting up a website, which eventually led to me getting into web development. On there, I ran a PHPBB discussion forum, uh, which I just installed. Uh, I didn't really know any programming yet, but trying to install the plugins for this uh, discussion forum software, uh, which back then consisted of manually applying patch files. That's how I actually started to learn some PHP, just picking up uh, on the side. And then uh, a while later through uh, school, actually learned my first programming language, I think Turbo Pascal, and then got a lot more interested in this and learned a few more languages and later got back into PHP and really studied the language and learned to program in it. What was the topic for the PHPBB forum? I don't think there was a specific topic. I think it was uh, simply set up to have a way to communicate with uh, some of my classmates in a group discussion format rather than individual chat or the it turned more into a toy to play with uh, and to experiment with so the discussion and forum aspect of it i think uh, got less important over time even makes sense so at that time with the php bb forum and the turbo pascal that was all at school were you studying computer science at university or did you have a different path Um, So this was the end of high school, I think. And then I did go on to study computer science uh, at a university. Uh, So I think that's when I got a lot more of the the formal education around programming. The computer science class in high school was quite basic, I guess. It gave you a basic idea of programming, but it's not really what got me to the point where I am today. And what about open source? What led you into the open source world? So it's actually exactly the PHPBB forums that I mentioned. So uh, that was kind of the starting point, and it really immediately got me in touch with open source software. This idea of being able to modify the software that you had there. Um, and as bizarre as this concept of manually applying patch files was, it's really what, on one side, gave me an insight into programming without really having an understanding of it yet because I was just following kind of this recipe Um, and at the same time it really gave me an appreciation for code being open for uh, me having the ability to edit it to see the effects of what happened so very much a 
self-study experimental thing to figure out uh, how this all works. Um, and so I think I was kind of convinced by that from the very beginning on. And then only later got into a lot of the other questions that I guess surround open source as a more professional engineer. Lots of the financing questions for bigger open source projects that we have today, for example. But the very beginning of programming for me was already all around open source and having this ability to try things out and modify them easily. Do you remember what your first contribution back was? Uh, I think I wrote a little plugin for PHPBB back then, but I actually cannot remember what exactly it did at the time. So PHP is quite a mature language. It's been around for at least 20 years at this point. And I remember some of my early programming experience was with PHP when I was a teenager. Could you just tell our listeners who might not have used PHP before some of the unique features of the language and some of the things that make it fun to program in and some of the things that you have to work around? So I think to answer that, I think we have to make a bit of a distinction between the PHP that you remember from your teenage times and that I too got started with and what PHP is today. Because it's been around for a good 20 years and the language has changed a lot in the meantime. Most notably, the last uh, couple of years, there's been changes to the process of PHP's development. Um, an introduction of a proper RFC process for changes, a very regular release schedule, uh, and all of this has led to the language maturing a lot. And I think PHP got a pretty bad reputation around that time in the early 2000s because it was so easy and accessible to beginners, a lot of whom did not necessarily know how to write secure software, did not know how to write scalable software, did not have any background like myself actually at the time in terms of software architecture. So the types of things people built with PHP back then were often uh, not very long living or like they were not made for um, the future. But modern PHP as it's used today is quite different from that. To answer your question uh, in general about PHP, you know, what, what would that be like to somebody who's not used the language before? I think uh, what people somewhat jokingly say about PHP, it's the Borg of programming languages. Uh, like it assimilates all the other ones eventually. It's very object-oriented at this point. There are some aspects of functional languages in there. What makes the, the language nice to use is that you can pick the right tools for what you're trying to do. But that at the same time is also what makes it a little weak because if you're not very used to the language, it's often difficult to figure out what's the, the best path to accomplish something. So I think very much unlike, let's say, Python, uh, where this whole idea of you know one right way of doing something exists, PHP is the opposite where there's just an infinite amount of ways of doing something and nobody's really going to be able to tell you which one is the ideal one which can be both a curse and a blessing at the same time. Yeah, one of the things that I remember about PHP is that it is very, very flexible and it does have quite a good standard library for a lot of things like that. The downside in some way is the fact that it is very flexible and that always used to allow people to get themselves into quite a bit of trouble. Like PHP was very forgiving. It could let you write code that was barely code and it would just accept it. The standard library is actually something that's quite interesting from a package manager's perspective, because uh, unlike some other uh, languages, we don't really have the problem that we need packages for 
basic string functions for basic work with arrays or maps, uh, because all of that is actually bundled in the standard libraries that ships with the language, which is quite extensive already. And speaking of things which ship with the language, at some point, I think PHP started shipping its own package manager called Pear. Can you tell us about that? So Pear has been around since pretty early on in PHP, but Pear is a lot of things at the same time. And from my perspective, that's always been a problem with it. Pear is a framework for libraries maintained by a group of people also referred to as Pear, which you can install through the Pear installer. So Pear, in a sense, is the command line tool to install packages, the registry on which the packages are, a framework of libraries that kind of fit together and have a common set of quality criteria, as well as a group of people maintaining this framework. And then at the same time, the command line interface could also be used to install PHPC extensions and not just the PHP ones. Pair was definitely a useful tool to have or like something that was necessary. And I think with Peckle today, there still is that one component which installs the C extensions, which is a very key uh, element for managing a PHP installation. But at the same time, the other parts of Pear would have been a lot more successful, I think, if they had been separated into different types of names so that people would have realized that they can totally publish their own packages to be installed with a Pear installer. And they don't have to go through the rigid set of criteria and rules to actually get their package accepted as a library in the Pear framework. Uh, which obviously for some private package you wouldn't even want to do. And so it was only in around 2010, I think maybe a little earlier than that, that people really started making use of that and starting their own pair registries to distribute their own software. But it was a very limited group of people who actually figured this out and it was definitely a helpful tool, but it, because of a lot of limitations, didn't quite get us as far as Composer then later did. Were people distributing packages outside of Pear as well, or was it Pear or nothing? People were definitely distributing uh, libraries of code outside of Pear, but I think for the most part that happened by making zip files available for download. I think there were a couple of frameworks or open source tools that had their own installation utilities, so they were bundled or tightly integrated with a particular set of packages that you would want to install. So there wasn't really an alternative that was widely used that you could install anything with. And a large part of working with external libraries in PHP, even around 2010, was managing large sets of zip files that you would download off of the internet somewhere. And what made Pear choose those restrictions in the first place? For instance, you mentioned they wanted you to format your code in a specific fashion. What advantages did they get from having those? So I think it's just a different requirement. So I think if I was to build a particular framework managed by a small group of people that want to maintain this in the long run, it makes a lot of sense to set quality standards for the libraries that I want to have inside of my framework. It's just that because this at the same time was the only way to publish a package to be used through the installer, uh, that they limit a lot how packages could actually be installed. So I think the requirements they had made a lot of sense for building a particular web framework to work with. They just didn't make a lot of sense for a central registry for a package manager. So Pear had some advantages, but also some drawbacks. And I'm guessing that was a big thrust that inspired you to create Composer. What got us started with Composer was the other dependency managers that existed in other programming languages. 
combined with the lack of something comparable in the PHP world. So in that sense, sure, Pairs shortcomings or the lack of features that we saw in other languages um, inspired us to build Composer. But I think in building Composer, it was mostly the inspiration from other languages uh, that led us to try and build a tool that could really help the typical PHP web application developer. Um, so I think from the very beginning on, we were looking at the Symfony framework, another web framework built in PHP that I and Jordi, who started the Composer, were using a lot at the time. And people kind of needed a way to more flexibly install individual, I think they were called bundles at the time, and they had come up with some shell script that would basically uh, run git commands for you to uh, get the different versions installed in the right directories. And I think there was a similar need across a lot of different PHP projects. And so that's why we started working on Composer. The other part of the inspiration actually goes back again to my work on PHPBB earlier on. And as I had started working on that open source project more, I also wanted to change how the plugin system works. And part of that would be to build a tool or a library that would allow a web application like PHPBB to install plugins and their dependencies. Um, so the goal for Composer was on one side to build this kind of package manager command line interface to install packages, but also to build a library that could be used to install plugins in a web application. You mentioned that you were looking at other languages and other package managers and seeing that they had capabilities that were lacking from the PHP ecosystem. What languages and package managers were you thinking of there? The key influences worth mentioning are Bundler. So Composer has a lock file, much like what was originally uh, in Bundler. And the other one is NPM. Um, a lot of PHP developers also work with JavaScript to some degree because any PHP web application will have some front end that requires some former amount of JavaScript. Um, so we all kind of familiar with NPM, which influenced a lot of the JSON structure for how we define a package. And then lastly, what's, I guess, lesser known or and a little more interesting from a technical perspective, the dependency resolution itself for Composer is based on a libzipper, um, a library that implements a SAT solver for OpenSUSE's RPM installer. Let's say I'm a PHP programmer and I'm looking to get started with Composer. How do I get Composer onto my system? And then how do I use it to add a dependency into my project? So to install Composer, you can go to our website, getcomposer.org, copy and paste a little snippet of code, a little snippet because it actually verifies the checksum of the file that you're downloading so that you're not just downloading a file, and then checks your local environment to verify that you can execute the Composer far file, and then it downloads the file and stores that for you. Uh, there are a couple of other ways of actually getting access to the file. For example, a lot of people work with Docker. There's an image that has Composer, uh, which you can use to build your own containers with Composer. But the most common way to initially get it is probably from our website. And then afterwards, it has a self-update mechanism where you just run Composer self-update. It's a single file, so it's pretty easy to manage and copy around. Once you have the file installed, the easiest way to 
get started on a new project is probably the composer init command, which uh, interactively walks you through creating a project, which creates a composer.json file, similar, like I was saying earlier, to npm's package.json file that defines the metadata for a package. Then there's the composer install and the composer update commands. Composer update is meant to generate a log file based on your JSON files requirements listing. And composer install is meant to create a vendor directory with all the source code based on the log file. And is that talking to a central repository for packages or is it using something else? Um, so the way that Composer works is that we have two distinct concepts, a package which is referred to only by name and a package repository which has a URL that allows Composer to look up package names. So by default, Composer will only use the packages.org repository, which is the central repository for public open source PHP packages. And then you can add additional private or other public package repositories to your composer.json, which will then be used by a composer update command to look up the packages by name. Um, so a little different from a lot of other package managers, we don't use, let's say, a fully qualified GitHub URL to refer to a package, but purely a name, which in turn actually allows you to add a different repository and when I say repository here, I mean a composer package repository. In hindsight, we should have called this a registry like other people did too. Unfortunately, we're kind of stuck with the term repository at this point, uh, which is a bit confusing when you're also talking about Git repositories at the same time. So the nice thing, because you're referring to packages by name only, and then those packages, dependencies, et cetera, also by name only, is you're able to add additional repositories apart from the default packages.org, which is the central registry for all open source PHP packages. So for example, you could uh, run your own or directly add a Git repository as a composer repository. So it's able to pull code directly from a Git repository. And this repository could provide a name that's also on the public registry. So this allows you to easily replace a package that's kind of deep down in a dependency of a dependency of a dependency with a forked version of your own where, for example, you're fixing some bug. Um, simply by adding this repository uh, and sort of overriding it because all the dependencies are only defined on the name. And so you don't have a reliance on a particular Git URL or something to install a dependency of a dependency. One of the things that I've learned through recording this podcast is it seems like a lot of issues in package management are double-edged swords. Like there's no right answers in here. And one of the things that we've seen come up with schemes which rely on a package name rather than a canonical URL is that you can get problems with people squatting on typos or replacing packages that have been unpublished for some reason and then sneaking malicious code into those things. Does Composer have those hiccups as well or do you have some technology in place to try and mitigate that? we avoid a lot of these problems simply because from the very beginning on we always required packages to consist of a vendor name prefix as well as then the package name itself so a package name is usually something like foo slash bar obviously you could still get a name very close to this so i think the typo squatting thing is still something that technically exists 
although we haven't seen this really happen in the in the wild. At the same time, we have on packages.org, the default open source repository, a way to ensure that nobody else can publish a different package under a vendor name that already is used by somebody. So you can ensure that if you're the organization Foo, uh, nobody else can publish a package Foo slash and then their own name, which already prevents, I think, a lot of the misunderstandings or miscommunication over ownership. And it also usually provides some sense of understanding of who maintains this project. So there are some well-known frameworks or uh, particular open source maintainers uh, under whose vendor name this runs. Then just looking at that, you already get a bit of an idea of uh, who's behind something. So speaking of vendors and maintainers, that's probably a good jumping off point to look at Composer from the other perspective. If I'm a PHP developer and I want to publish a package uh, via Composer, how do I do that? What files do I need to create? What's the process? Talk us through that. Right. So the file that you need is the one that I mentioned before, the composer.json, which defines the metadata of your package, which defines the name that we've been talking about. And then you have a list of requirements, which are packages that your package depends on. And you can have additional development requirements, which are only used when working on the package itself. They're not installed when you're using the package as a dependency. Um, you can then publish this package on packages.org. Doing so actually does not involve a publication process like in most other places. You simply first create the package on there by pasting in the URL to your Git repository typically. And then Packages actually pulls the code from there. When you create a new release or you want to publish a new release, all you do is you tag a particular version and the tag is automatically picked up by packages.org and available for everyone to install through Composer. So there is no build process, there is no publication process. Uh, not having a build process is something that works in PHP uh, because you don't really compile anything. It does obviously limit you, like you cannot do any text replacement or something like that on your code, but it also makes it easier for everyone else to kind of understand and verify the relationship between what they install and what's actually in the repository if there is no build process in the first place. Does that lack of build process extend to when composers installing packages? Are there pre-install and post-install scripts? So uh, this is all for packages that you publish somewhere to then be installed uh, as dependencies on another project. When you're actually running Composer install on a project that's using dependencies, then uh, you can do all sorts of things. So there are scripts, there are plugins for Composer even that uh, can trigger on certain events and modify how Composer works. The most common use, I think, is just something that uh, modifies Composer to install files into different directories. This is such a common thing because PHP um, is this language that has a lot of these open source products, I would say. You know, unlike lots of other web languages where there are frameworks to build tools, PHP has these things like Drupal, like Joomla, like WordPress, like PHPBB, um, you know, lots of these products that you can install and run as they are and then kind of install additional plugins. 
And a lot of them are also then frameworks or tools to develop around, but they're also products that you can just install and use as is. And so to get Composer to actually support these and be used in these products, um, you need to make some adjustments to make them backward compatible. And so Composer actually has a plugin mechanism that allows you to do that, to be able to use Composer with some of these uh, older PHP products. And with these applications that are written in PHP, does that have implications for Composer and how it does package management? Are there areas where Composer's taken a different path to other package managers? I don't think that this really has influenced it a lot. We intentionally, with the plugin system, try to keep this outside of core Composer behavior. And we try and encourage these projects to take over some of the best practices of working with a dependency manager. Um, so I don't think this has had a big impact on how Composer works itself. And what about culturally? Because often when people are interacting with these web-based apps, something like WordPress or PHP VB, people will be trying to model their way through and follow the install instructions just to get something up and running. They're not developers. Their interest isn't in programming for the thing. They are trying to get their app installed so they can get on and build a blog or host discussions. Has that affected uh, people coming into the Composer ecosystem and the level of expertise they have? Has that had any implications on those kind of social levels? Yes, we've definitely seen that. So examples like Drupal show this quite clearly where um, you kind of have a split community even in this project or product between uh, more professional engineering teams that use Drupal to build applications who are very happy to do so with Composer and who might already be familiar with it or spend time familiarizing themselves with it. But then you also have people who just want to get a pretty simple site up and running. And so something we have definitely seen as a result of these types of applications using Composer are more tools um, often tied to the specific application that try and make it simple or easy to get started and then also sometimes more specific plugins so i think drupal for example um, has this composer plugin that actually applies patches to packages after they've been installed so you can kind of publish a patch to another package as a package which on one side i find fascinating and on another side really kind of scary <laughs> but it's it's just kind of how they used to do things and they figured out a way to keep this working in Composer, which is just important to hold their community together. But again, from a technical perspective, I think this hasn't had much of an impact because they usually do this in the plugins. But the projects all struggle a bit with this discrepancy between the two groups you were describing, like the people who just want to get it up and running and who don't really care too much about the technical details, but then also the more professional engineers who work with the products. And I think WordPress is an another good example of this, which does not by default ship with Composer. Uh, but then you see a lot of the more professional agencies that build WordPress sites these days, and they actually want to use Composer because they manage a lot of these sites. They want to automate things. And so for them, it's uh, quite important to have the ability to use Composer. The majority of WordPress users probably would not like to ever have to do anything with that. Yeah, on the one hand, that idea of applying patches to packages is kind of horrifying. But I guess in a way, it's kind of similar to what Git's doing, right? Like a Git commit is really just a diff a package on a previous version of software. So I, I can kind of see how that would end up both being 
horrifying and a thing that I would no, want no part of and also a thing where it's like, yeah, that just that just works fine. Yeah, I think a lot of it actually comes down to just being reproducible. So you know what to expect and you you understand what the patch does and it doesn't just magically do something you don't expect it to do. Um, so I think in that sense, maybe just having the, the lock file that we do for packages for their patches is actually kind of an improvement as well. So we mentioned before that Compose's package registry has some qualities that make it unique. How successful has that registry been? How many packages do you have published on the registry? How much traffic does it get? And what's the organization behind it? How does it keep running? The growth of packages has been quite impressive to us. We have a total of, I think, 600 to 700 million packages installed per month at this point. There's a total number of packages of 240,000. But these are just really large numbers to me because, I mean, if I think about 240,000 packages, I don't know how to install like more than a couple hundred in a project, basically. Like, I don't think I'd ever be able to use quite that many packages. Um, so it's quite an impressive growth that we've seen, pretty exponential ever since it started back in 2012. And so uh, with that growth, you start thinking about things like bandwidth and scaling up the site. But for the longest time, this has been quite easy because part of what I explained earlier about not having a build process and there not being a way to push the package to us actually means that we do not host the downloads of the files themselves. So packages.org is purely metadata. And the distribution files, like the, I guess, zipped up package of a particular version or the actual Git repository if you're installing a development version is not hosted by us. Uh, we simply point to the respective GitHub URL to download the package. And so in effect, all we're hosting really is this JSON metadata from the composer.json files of the various versions of all the packages. But even that has gotten to the point a couple of years ago where we really saturated the network on that one big machine that used to run all of this and so we've had to spread this out and there are now mirrors in different parts of the world also reducing latency and making this available uh, more quickly around the world this used to be something that jordi and i kind of just took care of and i think uh, jordi was just paying for the service with his own money and as this started growing more, and especially because it requires more maintenance today with this amount of use, uh, we had to figure out a way to finance working on this. And so that's why back in 2016, we started Private Packagist, um, which is uh, one of these additional types of composer repositories that I explained earlier that you can have. Um, so we run packages.org for all the open source packages and packages.com where you can set up your own registry for private packages. Um, and we use the money that companies pay to use this to be able to pay for all the time that we spend on maintenance um, of the open source project and the main open source registry packages.org today. Um, so that company also takes care of paying for the increased server bills these days for running this around the world. And what has adoption of packages.com been like? Do you have a lot of uptake? Uh, it's been growing steadily since we launched the product in early 2017. We have uh, nearly 500 companies on there now, which on one side provides us with enough revenue um, that we can easily maintain the open source registry as well as the open source project in our work time instead of having to rely on having enough free time available to work on issues and so on. 
At the same time, I think there's still a lot of potential for more growth there. I think unlike some of the other languages where people started this pretty early on, we kind of only thought of this quite late. Um, so a lot of companies have internal solutions that kind of work for them. So it's definitely more work for us to provide enough additional functionality that's worth it for them to pay for our service. But of course, it's also an incentive that they can, through that, ensure that the open source parts that they rely on continue to be available and accessible. It was at the same time quite important to us that we don't go the route of taking on something like venture capital for this or otherwise some external investment. And so the way that it's running right now, uh, I think it's already on a good path to make sure that Composer and Packages.org can continue to exist as they are for a long time in the future. Did it take a long time to get to that point where it is a sustainable business? Or did you start Packages.com and it was clear from day one that this would be viable? So on one side, there was sort of a trial run with something similar beforehand that we called Torn Proxy. Um, this was something that Jordi had built himself, which was just a little PHP script that you could run yourself with quite limited functionality, but basically doing something similar. And through that, I think we got the understanding that there was enough of a need for a tool like this. But he'd never felt like investing much time into marketing this or developing it further. And so after that existing for a while and not really amounting to much um, is when we got together and decided to build a, uh, something together because it's a lot easier to work on something like this if you're not just there by yourself. And it's shown that that was really the path to success, I think, to kind of get together on this and work on it with multiple people so that you can, you know, talk to other people about your progress that you're making and you don't just eventually give up. Did you twist Geordie's arm to get him to give it a try with Torn Proxy? No, that was just his idea to start with. It had just gotten to the point where it would need work outside the scope of what he was really willing to invest in terms of the types of things that needed doing as well as the amount of time that he needed to invest in. I think uh, once we realized we wanted to work on this together, there was just a lot more motivation again for a while. And then it took us maybe a half a year of work to get to a working first version. And then about three quarters of a year until we got to the point where this was profitable enough to keep running or to be sure that we want to keep doing this in the future. And do commercial users of Packagist have requirements that are very different to the open source community? Has anything surprised you about the commercial requests you get? I think surprised, yes, but that's not necessarily something about private versus open source use. I think it's uh, you learn a lot about how people build projects that you don't really get to see by just running the public registry. Because with the private projects, you get a lot more insight through customer support into how people actually interact with the tool. So it's definitely been interesting to get a better understanding of this across a large number of companies to kind of see their internal use of Composer. Generally speaking, there are definitely some different requirements just in terms of reliability, for example. Like I mentioned, packages.org doesn't actually host any of the downloads. It's just wherever the open source maintainer decided to stick their package. Um, so as a business, if you want to make sure that this code is available, you kind of want to have it under your own control to some degree. Um, so there are requirements like that that we just don't cover with the open source version because it's outside of the scope of what we consider doing there. But on packages.com, you can take your own mirror of those open source packages and include it in your own private instance? 
Right, exactly. So there you kind of end up with a repository that does host all the code and you get full control over what packages are in there. For example, for agencies, you have ways of structuring the packages into different client project repositories um, so that you can also make sure that you, on one side, reuse private code across different clients, but ensure that individual clients of an agency can't access code that you've built specifically for a different client. Tools like that, a lot of things around authentication, a little bit around reliability, making sure that, you know, something disappears off of the public repository because somebody deletes you at least keep your local copy that you have of the package that you require in order to be able to deploy still. And is it really that client structure that's the most unique thing about how commercial organizations are using Composer or are there other things you've learned about project structure? I think what I've learned a lot about in the last year has been how companies uh, use third-party code with Composer that is not public or open source. Um, so there's actually a lot of places that will sell plugins to a particular tool and then agencies which buy these on behalf of customers. So there's kind of these somewhat complex structures to putting together a set of packages that come from lots of different sources through different intermediaries. And then if you want to still end up with a you know reproducible deploy, like something reliable, and not just rely on all these external dependencies, that's on one side something that private packages can really help with. But at the same time, it's also a challenge because you need to actually interact with all these different types of APIs to be able to pull the code from all these different places and really make this understandable and accessible to users who want to keep this kind of control over the packages they use. I'm glad you mentioned reproducibility as part of that because one of the things you mentioned before about packages.org was how packages.org doesn't host any code itself. It is pointing to external Git repositories and that seems like that's going to open up a whole different can of worms about reproducibility and being able to build at all. There's no guarantees that that Git repo is there or that the code that was there is the same code that was originally published. So how does Composer and Packagist deal with these issues? How do you avoid things like the NPM left pad issue where somebody unpublishes a package and breaks everyone else's code because it's a dependency somewhere far down in the chain? So I think there's a couple aspects to that. First of all, since you don't publish a version to packages, but we just take what's on GitHub anyways, the trust has to lie with where the source code for the open source package is. So in that sense, I think, how do you know it's the same code as what was originally published under that version is certainly a concern, but it's not something that packages can really help with. Uh, I think this is something that's down to trusting the maintainers of the packages you use, much like in other places, to not do something like that. You know, eventually your trust is always with the maintainers of the packages that you use. And I think our model around that is that we trust that only the maintainers of the package will keep access to the GitHub repository. And so your trust is still with the maintainers. It's not really with Packagist. The alternative is to use your own repository, something like Packagist.com, where you have both the files in the state that you wanted them to be in and keep them. Uh, we do have the lock file, which does at least ensure that basic level of reproducibility so that there's checksums and they're verified. But the other side, with something like LeftPad, 
that's definitely still always a possibility. We do have a measure in place on packages.org that prevents you from deleting a package if it has more than a certain number of installs. So you can still easily delete something that you accidentally published or like something very recent. But a widely used package, you can't just delete on packages.org. On the other side, that can still get deleted on GitHub. And there might be legal reasons why something has to be deleted, for example. So there are always these unique situations where you can't really avoid that anyway. So I don't think it's our place on packages.org to ensure that every package always remains available. I think that's something that you as a company, when you're using these packages or you as an individual will have to think about um, and make a decision to what level you want to be sure about this and what kind of technical measures you want to put in place to ensure that. Beyond companies taking snapshots of packages on their own registries, are there any projects to help ensure that long-lived projects do remain rebuildable in the future like is there like an archive.org for packages uh, not that i know of and so i mean i guess in a way you would know whether this is going to be an issue or not as composer's been around since 2010 so have you managed to look into this and find out whether there are the older versions of packages are kind of like slowly bit rotting away and aren't able to be built anymore uh, not from what I've seen. So I think the reason why things are in the state that they are is because this works. Because in the typical cases, people keep their code around long enough for this to never really become an issue. I don't think people necessarily test whether some project from 10 years ago can still be built today uh, because it's just not relevant in most cases. But at the same time, we haven't really seen this be a problem. So that's why things are working the way that they are. Yeah, and I guess in a way, whichever model you are looking at, there is still one source of truth, right? Like if you're an NPM, then the registry is where you're retrieving the package from. And if the package is on the registry, then it's buildable. And if it's not, then it's not buildable. But if you're just storing metadata, then you still have that single source of truth. It's just that source of truth is outside. You're still just looking at whether the code's available on github or not and that does come with drawbacks about you can't guarantee that it's available but it's not like you've got too many conflicts there right and the question then to a degree is you know who do you trust more github or us and i'm not sure that us should be the right answer to that does composer do checksums of package versions can i at least guarantee that the code i'm installing is the code that was originally published for a version in principle, yes, it does. There is a bit of an issue with this on GitHub specifically, depending on what you do there. Um, so if you uh, use your own private registry, then absolutely. If you just use the open source one, because the downloads come off of GitHub and GitHub does not currently build stable zip files, we can't directly do this. So that's something we'd like to address and improve, but there currently isn't a way for us to really verify this. So one option that we have is that instead of using a checksum of the file that you're downloading, we'd have to actually generate a checksum ourselves of the contents of the file. But to store those, again, would require us to actually have this kind of a build process in place. And the alternative is actually that GitHub changed this. And we did speak to them a bit. And it looks like they're interested in actually fixing this to a degree to make it possible to keep the same checksums when you download the same zip file again. 
Speaking of changes and improvements, I understand that there's a V2 in the works for Composer. We're working on version 2 of Composer, which is not going to change a lot in terms of how users interact with Composer, but it will make some internal changes that we've been wanting to make for a while uh, in order to further improve performance and memory use that have an impact on the plugin system. So that's really why we have to call it a version 2, because uh, it will break backward compatibility with plugins for Composer. And we want to finally make this break to be able to make some more progress on that. Uh, so some of the key things, I guess, that users will actually interact with are you know, new features like HTTP2 support. Uh, we should have an improved, much faster network protocol to talk to Composer registries but also changes to the structure of installation. So I explained this earlier briefly when you asked me about how Composer works as a user, that we have a, an update and an install command that I guess are also somewhat common concepts from other places where you have the JSON metadata file for your project as input, then you have a lock file as the output of the first process, and then you have a, a second process which installs the actual code and the dependencies and maybe triggers various after install scripts and so on. Composer has this and has this basic concept from the beginning on. Um, I think only over the years have we really started to look at this in a bit more of an abstract sense. And so today, for example, in terms of the dependency software from an RPM installer, Composer still uses as input for the first process to generate the lock file, the set of packages that are currently installed in your project which if you just look at this in a more abstract sense, doesn't really make any sense because you want to generate the lock file in a reproducible way based on the external registries plus your local JSON definition. Uh, and you don't really want the local state of your project to impact how the lock file ends up looking like uh, so that you can do that in two different places and get the same results. This is not usually a problem, but there are some edge cases where this leads to really odd bug reports, which are kind of difficult to debug and explain to people why this comes about. And so part of the restructuring internally is to make these processes uh, a little more distinct um, and separate them clearer. And what is a dependency solver? Um, so in Composer, we use a set solver to resolve dependencies. Set, S-A-T, stands for satisfiability, and it's the problem of finding a set of assignments for variables that satisfy a particular Boolean expression. So that means if you have a set of variables A, B, C, D, and a Boolean expression like A and B, or C and A, or D and A, then you need to figure out which of these variables have to be true and false for the whole expression to become true. So does A have to be true in this case? And then if A is true, does C have to also be true and so on? So this kind of, you need to figure out what all these variables are. And the way that we use this to map to dependency resolution is that we represent each version of each package that is available as one of these variables. And then true ends up meaning this package in this version needs to be installed and false ends up meaning this package in this version should not be installed. So it either needs to be installed or deleted if it's not supposed to be present. That's how we try and figure out which of your dependencies in a Composer project actually need to be installed. Uh, so we take a list of all the different packages that are available and all their versions and then 
turn this into this type of pooling satisfiability problem, run a SAT solver on that to give us an answer to the question of which of these have to be installed at the same time. And then that we can turn into a kind of transaction on your file system of these packages need to be installed now and these things need to be removed. And going back to Composer v2, one of the things you mentioned was that the plugin system is changing and that's going to break backward compatibility. So what are the restrictions of the current plugin system and what will now be possible when v2 is ready? That's really only about uh, changing the interface to match this new clearer structure of Composer update and Composer install. So it's not really a main difference in terms of what plugins can do. It's just a technical limitation on how the interface exactly expects certain variables. And given that Composer has been around for nearly a decade now, are there other areas where you wish you'd made different decisions at the beginning? I think actually what we're fixing, what I mentioned, uh, is one of these things that I, I wish I had seen a little clearer at the time. This understanding of the process that leads to a lock file and then the process that leads to the installed files in a vendor directory. There are a few things uh, relating to the process of going from a set of all the packages and all the versions, like I just described with a set solver, to this Boolean expression that we could have approached a little differently in the first place that would have made it easier for us to speed this process up. Because as you can imagine, if you actually wanted to take all the packages that exist and all of their versions and then turn this into a Boolean satisfiability problem, you would easily run out of memory given the amount of packages that we have today. Um, so part of the problem with using a SAT solver for this is actually the step before that where you have to figure out which packages may actually be interesting for this particular run of the dependency resolver. And I think we have some features in Composer that make it difficult to answer this question. So we have a way for packages to state that they replace a package by a different name, which means that they can be installed instead of the package by that other name. This is quite useful if you want to provide an alternative to an existing open source package where the maintainer is not maintaining the package anymore, sometimes just because you make different decisions. But then you have additional packages that depend on this package, and you'd like to remain compatible with that interface, but use your alternative. So replace actually gives you a way of doing that. There are a couple other keywords um, like provide uh, that are specifically designed to uh, make it possible to have a set of packages that all implement a common interface. So this is quite commonly used for logging libraries that all provide what's called a PSR log implementation. Uh, so it's kind of the name of the standard and then implementation for the package name, which makes it possible for dependency resolution to be satisfied if any of these packages are installed. So these types of things make Composer quite flexible, and I think they're great as a user, but they definitely pose problems for scalability in terms of this whole dependency resolution process. And I think in version 2, we're just taking a lot of what we've learned there to make this process a little more streamlined so that we can then actually add optimizations in the individual steps because it's not all so shoveled in together with each other. Speaking of features, is there anything you see in other package managers around today that you wish you had in Composer? 
I'm not sure if that's really something that exists in that sense in other package managers, but it's one of these distinctions between package managers where I wish we had a little more of the the other side, which is PHP as a language makes it impossible to load multiple, let's say, classes of the same name or symbols, generally speaking. There's no way to dynamically define them. So let's say unlike JavaScript, for example, where if you have two dependencies, they could each use a different version of the same dependency internally. This is not possible in PHP. We have to make sure that there is only ever one version of each package installed. That's part of why we use a SAT solver to resolve dependencies, given all these extra constraints that I was explaining, like replaces and provide and conflicts to figure this out, because we can really only install one version of the package at a time. At the same time, a problem that we have is that people use tools built in PHP together with their projects. Let's say some static analysis tool, which also is built in PHP simply because it has access to the AST through the language, so it makes sense to build that in PHP. And now if you want to install this development dependency through Composer as well in the same project, it means that any dependency of this development tool that you're using, which is not really related to your project at all, has to resolve to exactly the same version for any package that you also use inside your own project. That's something where we'd actually like to not have this, right? Because uh, as long as they're not executed inside the same process, it's perfectly fine to have different symbols. So I think that's something that we want to address in the future as well uh, and find ways around. But I think it's made it a lot easier for us than some of the other languages who have been going the other way around, where they started out with... You know, you can just do lots of different versions of the same packages and now trying to figure out how do we flatten the structure a bit because it's too much. Uh, so we're kind of in the opposite boat of trying to flatten a little less, I guess. Speaking of external projects, what is the relationship like between the Composer project and PHP and Composer and Pair? So I think today Composer is the de facto package manager for PHP and nobody really disagrees with that anymore. There is an RFC still under discussion to unbundle Pair from PHP, but I think that's mostly about the aspect of Pair that installs C extensions for the PHP language at this point, uh, not so much about the package manager apart from that. At the same time, Composer works uh, by simply having a single file installed, so there isn't a need for a lot of complex uh, interaction or integration, uh, so it's always been pretty easygoing. There are some upcoming features probably. There has been one recently about preloading classes, uh, like an efficiency optimization thing in PHP, where there's been a lot of good communication around ways that this could be integrated with Composer. I think the outcome actually was that there isn't much of a point because it's too specific to the respective application, but there isn't really any conflict between the communities. I think actually, for the most part, they're kind of the same anyways. There's a lot of overlap, so... There isn't a lot of conflict in this area. So if people want to learn more about Composer, where should they go for that? If you just uh, want to learn about Composer as a tool, the best place to start is getcomposer.org, which has all of our documentation, the installation instructions. Then we develop the tool on GitHub, which also has a long list of issues that some of them are marked for people to start helping us with. 
And you can help us even by just reproducing some of the issues that people report there. So that's github.com slash composer slash composer for composer of the command line interface. And there's a couple other repositories on there for some internal libraries that we use, um, like a semantic versioning library that just does version comparisons and some other tools that we use as part of composer. And if people want to learn more about packages, the private registry, where should they find out more info about that? So that's all at packagist.com. So the distinction is really just in the top level domain, packages.org for all the open source things and packages.com for private packages, the utility for businesses using Composer. And finally, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go for that? Uh, I think probably just try and follow me on Twitter. I do have a website, which I really never update. So that's probably not the most interesting, (laughs) but I'm at Naderman on Twitter. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and telling us all about package management in PHP. It's been really interesting to see some of the parallels and differences between the PHP package managers compared with some of the other ones. And it's also been nice for me to talk about a language which I started with. Yeah, it's been a pleasure for me as well. And thank you, everybody in the audience, for listening. We'll be back again soon with some more package management talk.